Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. That is some good news uh, we heard proclaimed in today's gospel. You know how strange it is that the one who is called the Prince of Peace, the one at whose birth the herald angels sang, Peace on earth and mercy mild, the one who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, now says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This passage and others like it are often classified as the hard sayings of Jesus. Among them are words like, let the dead bury their dead. The one who has no sword must buy one. Sell all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me, and so forth. Today's reading, along with these other difficult sayings of Jesus, uh, must be taken in the principal context of the thrust of Jesus' entire teaching, which is this, that the coming of the kingdom of God has come in his person and in his work, that is, in his identity as the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. And in this light, we will better understand what Jesus means when he talks about division and also what it means for us as his followers There is good news here in this passage, and we'll hear it in three points that actually flow from the section just read uh, by our rector. The first is that Jesus' death was decisive. The second point is that following Jesus arouses opposition. And a third is that Jesus calls you and me, calls us, to watchfulness. Let's tackle that first point. Jesus' death was decisive. He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am until it is completed. In verses 49 and 50, Jesus alludes to his suffering and death, and he connects it to the idea of judgment. You see, fire is a symbol of cleansing of purification, and hence of judgment. And then Jesus expresses his anxiety over his impending baptism, which is an image for the ordeal that awaits him in Jerusalem, his passion and death, where God's judgment would come to bear on Jesus, who would suffer and die for a world at enmity with God. This essentially is the judgment and the kingdom come together in Jesus Christ. His cross would be a cause of contention, as the priest Simeon prophesied 33 years earlier when uh, over the baby Jesus with these words, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Christ's death became and continues to be the decisive point between those who would admit their need of a Savior and those who would say they have no need of a Savior. But by Christ's death, you and I have passed over God's judgment into his kingdom where true peace is found. But yet, 
There are those, there are many, who cannot receive this kingdom offer of God's peace. Which brings us then uh, to the threshold of our second point, that following Jesus entails or arouses opposition. Now we get to the heart of Jesus' difficult passage here. In verses 51 and 52, uh, if you could look at it in your bulletin if you'd like, he says, Do you think I have come to bring peace? No, I tell you, but rather division. Matthew's version of this same account uh, puts it much more strongly where he has uh, Jesus saying, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. How's that for the words from the Prince of Peace? Jesus makes the point eloquently by saying how he will drive a wedge into the very roots of social structure in the family. Isn't this true of all of us, though, who follow Christ? We all have family members who do not share our faith in Christ. Perhaps there are some, some of us here in this room who have experienced rejection or scorn by those same family members. In most cases, I suspect, that division is a rather mild one, and uh, it usually takes the form of being regarded as as, as holding to a, a quaint anachronism, as, a, as you know, that we Christians uh, have an old-fashioned belief, uh, or perhaps as a, a personal interest along the lines of a hobby or a pastime. I've heard it said to me and to others, oh yeah, uh, Doug's into religion, or yeah, yeah, he's into that Jesus stuff. You know, and it's, it's, not, it's not harsh, uh, but there's a little sting to it. But yet there remains, right, this this division. Maybe at the Thanksgiving there aren't any blowouts over religion, uh, perhaps maybe over politics, uh, but there remains a division in our families nonetheless. Flannery O'Connor, the writer, put it so much better than I can when she wrote of Christians saying, riffing off of one of Jesus's words, she said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. The cross, St. Paul tells us, is an offense. It is an obstacle within any religious community where the way of self-justification is by observing rules and keeping up appearances. And the cross is also foolishness to the secular community where the way of self-justification is by proving oneself to be the best, the brightest, the healthiest, the strongest, the fastest the perfect professional, perfect artist, minister, athlete, parent, whatever. This latter phenomenon is uh, typical of our present post-Christian society in what uh, author and friend of this church, David Zoll, calls seculosity in his book by the same name. Now, seculosity, as he defines it, is simply religiosity but without God. The subtitle of his book Uh, which I highly recommend, by the way, uh, goes like this. Seculosity, colon, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. However, looking also just uh, a week and a half ago, a, uh, a secular source, the Atlantic Monthly, published a video by Derek Thompson entitled, Work is the new God. Check it out on YouTube. It's about eight minutes long, and it's worth a, worth a listen. Where 
Thompson shows how work has replaced religion as the organizing center of people's lives. That, from a secular, and I would have to say rather unfriendly, uh, source. But whether it's religiosity or seculosity, the judgment of the cross falls equally upon each. We can't save ourselves. The kingdom remains a threat, however, not only to individual illusions of autonomy, but also to the political systems and powers of this world. When we hear of church bombings and fires, when we hear of people abducted and killed because of their Christian faith, when we hear of tighter restrictions and crackdowns on Christians meeting together, then we see Jesus' words in sharper relief. But in the light of all of this, brothers and sisters, what are we to do about it? Well, that brings us to Jesus' third point, that he calls you and me to watchfulness, to watchfulness, vigilance. He tells his listener in the last part of the section of our gospel reading to pay attention to the signs of the times, to be a people who are aware of the spirit of the age, a fancy word for that, the zeitgeist uh, in which we live. There's nothing sophisticated here, really. He compares it to the aware, uh, this awareness to reading the signs of the weather. And for us, it is a no-brainer, is it, that Christianity has lost a place in the public forum. If anything, Christianity and Christians in general are regarded with suspicion even if that negative regard is based on caricatures and false stereotypes of who we are. As many of you know, and at St. George's, I think only a couple knew, but many of you know that I wear another hat. I'm a recently retired New York City public high school teacher. And um, a couple years ago, our school hosted a guest instructor uh, for a special program. And one day in the teacher's lounge, as we're having lunch around the conference table, I and my colleagues were just there chatting and stuff, and, and this fellow walks in the room, and, and for, for no apparent reason, without any provocation, he started waxing ugly about Christians. He started talking, and I, I quote more or less, those narrow-minded, bigoted, racist, blah, 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 and he ends it with Christians. I'm sitting there with a tuna fish sandwich half in my mouth and my eyes furtively looking at my colleagues who all knew that I was an ordained minister. And I could just see them saying to me, okay, Irving, that's how they know me at work. What are you going to (laughs) do? So I put down my sandwich and honestly, on the Bible, uh, I very politely said to this young man, Words to the effect, uh, hey, I am a Christian, and all of those nasty things that you say about us don't apply to me. All of those epithets you just threw out. Fortunately, fortunately, he promptly apologized, pedaled backwards, and said, oh, well, really, I didn't mean all Christians. And he, we ended up giving each other fist pound across the table, and I went back to my tuna sandwich. My point in objecting to him, however, was not to signal my virtue over those other Christians. 
I too am guilty of faults and prejudices, as indeed we all are. I prayed that I would never pull my pharisaical skirts up as so as to not get dirty. My point, rather, I had to inform our guest that to paint all Christians with a single stroke of the brush is just as illiberal and narrow-minded as he accused us of being. I just had to set him right on that one. Well, things turned out well that time. But I'm reminded of Jesus' words, his encouraging words to you and to me today. Words that come from not his hard words, hard sayings, but from what I will call his sweet sayings, from the Beatitudes themselves. Hear them once again where he speaks to this very issue. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Our second lesson was most certainly a a graphic illustration of what happens to God's prophets and followers when they face a hostile world with God's message of peace and forgiveness. Now, as a cautionary note, and I think some of us might be thinking this in the back of our minds. I know I was. As a cautionary note, let's not confuse opposition with Christ with things that we might do or say that elicit well-deserved criticism or ridicule. There is a kind of Christian paranoia out there that sees persecution behind every door and every headline. We certainly do not need to bring on any more unnecessary criticism. Remember that this is our opportunity to direct ourselves back to Christ and him crucified. He is the point of contention, not us. He is the one who can defend himself, not us. A great uh, preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, uh, referring to the Bible, but I'm applying this also to Jesus, he said, "Defend, defend the Lord, I would just as soon defend the lion. This, rather, is our opportunity to cast ourselves on Christ. Because as such, he is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. And because we have passed from judgment to mercy, we are free to bring that mercy to a world in desperate need of it. This is exactly what Jesus meant when on the eve of his passion and death, he told his disciples, These words that I I quoted only in part at the beginning of the message and now quote in full towards its end. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. My brothers and sisters in Christ, when we gather around this table, there are no divisions. We all belong to one Lord who feeds us, one in faith, one in baptism, one body in Christ, no matter what our earthly divisions and differences. Join together in him who promises to give us the kingdom against which no opposition will prevail. 
to which we can all say, thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.